0: Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Alexa Ruel is a PhD candidate in psychology and public scholar at Concordia University. Her research focuses on understanding how and why the decision-making strategies we use change across the lifespan. She also examines the process of deciding which decision strategy to engage in, referred to as metacontrol. Her passion for making research accessible has led her to launch two science communication journals within the psychology department at Concordia in 2019 and 2021. Alexa hopes to pursue a career as a decision-making researcher in academia or industry, while remaining active in the science communication community. Speaking of science communication, that's exactly why we have Alexa with us here today, along with a special co-host, Allegra, who is completing grade eight this year and who will be engaging in the discussion with us, making sure we keep things extra accessible. So without further ado, let's welcome both of them onto the podcast. Alexa, how are you?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Allegra, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's awesome to have both of you. First time that we have a high school student on the show, and I'm looking forward to doing more interviews like this down the line. So really excited to see how this new format pans out. Alexa, first question definitely has to go to you. Give us a quick idea of how you got to where you are right now in your PhD. What did your academic background look like?
2: That's a great question. I actually did not start lined up to go into psychology. So if we start from high school, I started with science and pursued science in Sejep. And then from there had kind of a bunch of options open to me. Originally wanting to go into medicine, quickly realizing that it might not be the best fit given my fear of blood. Um, Looking for other options that might be interesting to me given my passion for science and understanding how things work. I quickly moved to psychology and understanding how the brain works and how it affects behavior. And that led me to complete a bachelor's degree at McGill. And following that, realizing that I had a specific passion for anything cognition related, to investigate um, at first infant cognition in my master's degree, and then switching over finally to my PhD um, studying decision-making across the lifespan.
0: I feel like infant cognition is almost an oxymoron. (laughs) You know, like when I see a baby, I'm not really thinking that, like it doesn't look like they're actually thinking about anything, they're just kind of randomly exploring and it's this chaotic interaction with their environment. What, What was like the big takeaway from studying infant cognition for you?
2: The first takeaway I think would be it's hard. Um, Like you said, they're not going to tell you what they're thinking. It's hard to figure out what they're doing and why. So the big challenge there is trying to find ways to do that without having to ask them to do anything very demanding and then extrapolate what that might mean in terms of the data you get from there. But the other thing I learned in the process is that there's a lot more happening behind the scenes, so to speak, than we originally assumed that there is happening there.
0: Okay. So it doesn't look like much is going on in that little infant's head, but it's actually real busy in there.
2: Absolutely.
0: Okay. So I know that your research is about decision-making across the lifespan. It's going to be one of our main focuses for today. Are you currently researching the entire lifespan from infant to near death?
2: Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, no. Mainly right now I'm focusing on young adulthood, which is considered to be as of about 21 years old, to about 28 or 30, as well as older adulthood, where we skip ahead and start examining kind of decision-making around 65 to 85. However, I do hope to look at kind of the younger side of the lifespan and look at how children and adolescents make decisions. So in that range of maybe eight to 18 or so.
0: I would imagine that, uh, of course, we we don't need to go very deep into this because you haven't started your research, but just kind of intuitively, the role of hormones must be really, really huge in adolescence, but maybe less so in fully developed adults. Is that something that you might foresee in that population?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely many more factors to consider when you're studying adolescence in any domain. When it comes to decision-making and the cognition involved there, there's definitely consideration of hormones and then any other change that happens with puberty. So, you know, wanting to be more independent, wanting to be more autonomous, those kind of abilities and drives transfer to decision-making for sure.
0: Okay. Just before we move forward, in your field, do we distinguish between the word decision and the word choice and can we use those words interchangeably in our discussion today cuz i f- they have a bit of a different flavor decision versus choice
2: i use them interchangeably and i think many researchers in the field do as well definitely decision is something that's kind of a seems more complex for some reason than the word choice but essentially it comes down to the same thing it's essentially picking between two or many options, uh, which can be called decision, choice, they all kind of mean the same thing.
0: Okay. So I've been thinking a lot about this topic since we first decided to have an interview. One of the concepts that I've come across is this concept of cost-benefit analysis. So this is a kind of decision that we make. Allegra, are you familiar with cost-benefit analysis?
1: so that was something that i was actually going to ask you um when i read your article you were talking a lot about benefits and costs and i was sort of wondering what you meant by costs
2: that's a great question thank you in the field we recognize costs as anything that kind of would be like a con so if you're thinking of making a pro and con list the con is kind of what we call a cost so anything that's going to maybe discourage you from choosing that option And these costs can be anything from not wanting to think hard to I'm going to have to travel really far or this is going to cost me a lot of money. So anything that kind of has that negative aspect to it.
0: I'm glad we actually brought in money here because there's an expression which is that you got to spend money to make money. And so in a sense, it's almost impossible to avoid incurring a cost in terms of decision making. And sometimes we need to actually overcome the cost or overcome the cons to end up having some kind of benefit after the fact, right?
2: Yeah, and that's absolutely when this idea of benefits comes into play. And then we can talk about it together as a cost-benefit analysis. So the cost, if we're talking about money, would be the actual money you're putting into the decision. And the benefit there would mean that, okay, maybe it's going to cost me $10, but in the end, I'm going to get a really good chocolate bar from where, you know, wherever I'm trying to go and get that. So maybe that benefit of gaining a chocolate bar actually outweighs the cost of having to pay $10 to get there. So the benefit on its own is defined as anything that's a pro. So anything that's positive in the decision or in the choice you're analyzing. And then the cost benefit analysis is weighing those two is saying, do the benefits actually outweigh the cost or not, and that kind of leads to the decision-making process.
0: So is cost-benefit analysis one of those kind of mental schemas, mental paradigms, mental frameworks, decision-making frameworks (laughs) that you are comparing across the lifespan, or are you looking at different kinds of thinking, different kinds of decision-making than this?
2: So it's definitely part of it. Um, In terms of what I've looked at in the cost-benefit analysis world of decision-making is at a higher level. So actually, when we talk about decision-making or making a choice, you can think of having to decide how to decide. Let me give you an example that we used in kind of one of our previous papers where picture you're traveling to a new city and you have to meet someone at a restaurant in that new city. And you're at your hotel and you kind of have two main options to get there. Option one would be learn the layout of the city. So kind of learn the map of whatever city you're currently in and then put the map away and then navigate to that restaurant. The second option would be, well, just put the address in your GPS system or your phone and let it get you there. So you have this higher level decision that you have to make which is which strategy or which way am I going to use to navigate to this restaurant? So these cost benefit analyses, in terms of how I've examined them is at this higher order level. So deciding between the different strategies we can use to decide
0: so do we have this kind of clear distinction between okay so people in their 20s and 30s opt for the gps and then people in their 80s don't and i also have to ask for this specific example does you know technological adeptness have anything to do it like you know obviously if i'm 80 maybe i don't know how to use gps so that seems like maybe a factor we have to take into account here
2: absolutely yeah for sure there's a lot of individual factors too so you can think of someone being in the city because they're planning on moving there and they're there to kind of visit the city first. Well, maybe there's more benefits to them to learning the layout of the city in contrast to someone who's kind of just there for one night and only needs to get to the restaurant once, who's therefore probably going to prioritize using the GPS. Um, But there's also these really interesting lifespan differences that, you know, of course, older adults will have more difficulty using the technology in the GPS system to get to the restaurant. So maybe they'll opt to memorizing it, even if it's maybe a little harder, but all these things kind of come together. And this is where the complexity of studying decision-making is really evident where you have to weigh individual differences, but also the age of these individuals. And you kind of have this complex webbing of information to kind of sort through to figure out what's happening and why.
0: So I love complexity. It makes conversations like this really interesting. And of course, at least from my interpretation, complexity here refers to the interactions between kind of our our internal world, what's happening in our heads, and the external world, what's happening in our environments, in our society. And presumably, there's kind of this interplay between how our environment affects our decision making and how our internal thought process affects our decision making. So if we're actually going to get kind of a little bit deeper into figuring out the distinctions between how younger people and older people make decisions. Do we see a different kind of effect that the environment has, let's say, on how younger people versus older people make decisions? Is that one of the dimensions where we see a difference?
2: Yes, for sure. And a really great example of that is just kind of knowing that older adults have these greater difficulties to engage in cognitive tasks, period. So definitely at that point, when you have this choice, if we go back to this choice about choosing to represent the layout of a new city, kind of learning the map and creating that internal model of the map that you've learned versus using the GPS, there's definitely constraints in the older adults on both ends. So maybe they're not able to use the GPS system because they don't really understand it, but they also might not be able to represent the environment or the layout of the city in the same way that a younger adult would. So you have this external constraint meeting internal demands or internal abilities whereby you have to consider, okay, what do I need to do? What are my options? But also, what am I capable of doing? And this is really what's interesting for me, at least, when we look at this in older adults, is to see how do they how do they deal with all this information? Are they aware of their limitations? Do they do this cost-benefit analysis just as well as younger adults? Or are they kind of at a disadvantage here?
1: So, Lexa, when you're saying that older adults sort of are not able to do or make decisions maybe as clearly as younger adults or do things the same way, when would you say that that age would change? So what age would you say, maybe like an adolescent or an or an adult going into an elderly person, when would you say that that age difference would change sort of the mindset or the mm-hmm. way of making a decision?
2: Super hard question to answer, but really, really interesting one. First of all, I'm not sure there is a specific age, just because there's huge individual differences. So you can imagine one older adult that would be perfectly fine to make really complex decisions until their 80s, and another older adult that has starts to show impairments around 65 or 70. So... This is kind of the benefit of studying a larger age range in terms of studying older adults is that we're able to understand not only as a group when this starts to decline, which is probably about 65 to 75, if I give you a, a very vague answer there. But the beauty of it is to be able to see how this changes from individual to individual and trying to understand why is it that one person will show decline earlier on in contrast to someone else who might show decline only in their 80s or 90s even.
0: So Alexa, I'd love if you could give us an idea of what some of the main contributing factors are that affect how we make decisions at any point in our lifespan in terms of what you've actually studied in your own research. We've already mentioned the influence of environment and of course age, what else is there?
2: There's a lot and there's a lot we're not quite sure about as well. So we do know that things like memory definitely play a role. To be able to make a good decision if you have made that decision in the past, you want to be able to recall what you did, how that worked out for you, and then either deciding from there if you should repeat the decision if it worked well before or avoid that same decision if it didn't. So that's definitely a factor. And I haven't really studied memory myself per se, but in the group of researchers I work with, they have examined working memory, which is kind of keeping things in memory, but only for a short period of time, as opposed to a long-term memory. And working memory seems to play a huge role in younger adults' ability to make decisions, especially when we talk about these harder decision-making strategies. But when we look at that in older adults, it seems to be only part of the story. So here's my interest in kind of continuing my studies in all this decision-making research, and specifically across the lifespan, is to understand if memory is part of the puzzle for our older adults – but it's not the whole puzzle. Well, what what else is there? What else is changing how we make decisions as we age?
0: All right, so we got memory. Allegra, yeah, let's hear it.
1: Um, Alexa, have you studied, or is would you say that gender is something that would affect decision-making, especially in young adolescents with like the maturity age or when that happens? So I'm not as well-versed on the work with adolescents and gender differences myself.
2: But I know a little bit about it. So there is some research looking at the effect of hormones, as we mentioned earlier, on decision making, given that there's some research showing that different hormone levels and actually even where women might be in their reproductive cycle can affect cognitive processes. So you can imagine that that might have some effect on decision making. I haven't done this work myself, but there is some work out there showing that there are some effects. But it's something that's still starting to be looked at, given that we're still fleshing out what these different strategies are, what do they look like regardless of sex, and then slowly diving into when we add gender to the picture, what does that look like? How is this um, changing what we know about decision-making?
0: So you mentioned that you are kind of part of this group of researchers, Alexa, uh, some of whom work on memory. How does your research maybe fit into the broader goal of what your lab is trying to accomplish? What are some of the big questions where your research is directly contributing to answering those?
2: That's a great question. In this group, there's a bunch of people, and by my group of researchers, I'm referring to not only people in my own lab, but people from other labs that we collaborate with. So, researchers in Germany, researchers now in the US, um, and a little bit all over as well. And my role and my lab's kind of involvement in all this research on decision making is understanding what are the strategies that we engage in and how do those change. So, I can dive into that a little bit more if you'd like as well. When we talk about strategies, we can think of two main strategies so far in the decision-making research field or environment. We have model-based decision-making, where you're kind of using that map that you would have created of the city layout or of the decision-making environment to help you figure out where to go and what decisions to make. The other strategy is model-free a model free strategy is kind of not so reliant on a map or on kind of this global understanding of all options that are possible, but kind of more relying on associations you've made between things you've done and what that outcome was. So I made the choice to click the blue button and I got $10. Maybe I should repeat that decision again because I liked the outcome of $10. So you can see how these two strategies are kind of extreme ends of the same scale where one is a lot more complex. So learning the layout of an entire city or an entire decision, uh, all the possibilities in the decision-making tasks is much much harder than kind of just learning, okay, this was good, this was bad. And that's kind of what I'm focusing on in terms of what my research is in this decision-making researcher group is understanding what those decision strategies are, what do they look like when we look at the brain And how do these strategies change as we get younger or older?
0: I love this distinction between model-free and model-based. Intuitively, just because at the beginning, I was kind of talking about how infants look like they're just randomly exploring. To me, it kind of seems like infants are operating under this model-free decision-making strategy where When you're born, you don't really know how to make sense of the environment around you. So naturally, you don't have a model for it. But on the flip side, I could see how as we get older, patterns and habits that we have become more ingrained. The knowledge that we have becomes solidified of our maps, for example, of the places we live and the kind of interactions we have with people. And presumably, we become more rigid and more model-based as we age. Is my intuition reflected in the literature or, like is usually the case in science, is it much more complicated than this?
2: <laughs> it's definitely much more complicated. Okay. Um, if we talk about what we see in infants, it's kind of more parallel to watching small humans develop the models that they're then going to rely on to make decisions. So they're kind of gathering information, trying to create some type of model or think of it as like a rule to help them make decisions in the future. So as we age, so moving from infancy to young adulthood, now we're starting to have these models that we can rely on to make decisions. And then unfortunately, the sad part of all this is as we age, those models tend to kind of deteriorate in the way to speak, Mm. given that our brain starts changing as we age, we're not able to engage in the same way that we used to as we were younger, we're not used to or able to use these maps that are these models that we created our whole life anymore. And this is where we actually see a switch to model free decision making as we age, where if we're not able to use the map that we maybe used so well 20 years ago, we're going to start trying to find like shortcut rules. So blue button, good, red button, bad, and kind of work around that. So that's kind of how it changes. Now, some of my work is just trying to understand why that is and why the brain is leading to these changes. And some work I hope to do very soon is actually understanding if there's more to it than just these two strategies. So are there more that people are doing that we just haven't fully examined yet across the lifespan that might make it less a grim of a picture than just kind of deterioration and shifting to very simple decision making?
0: So somewhere in between model-free and model-based decision-making, though, you kind of introduce this idea of model formation, which we see in in infants. So I would get the sense that we're kind of constantly forming and then breaking down and then reforming these models as we go through life, maybe even on a a minute-by-minute basis. You know, you get a call from someone who says something, and it just kind of changes the way that your world is. And so your models change.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Part of it is kind of like a hypothesis testing protocol, right? So I think this is how things work. And then you either see something or you try something that falsifies that. And then you're like, okay, well, that's not how things are. That's not what the truth is behind all of this. And you change your model to kind of incorporate that new information you got. And this is both true at kind of this global level. So if you think of like a model if we think of it that way, of how things work when you go to a restaurant, when that was still the case, um, you know, you have this kind of, okay, this is the restaurant, this is my model. This is kind of what I understand that is okay versus not okay for the environment. But there's also this idea that we do this on a very small level. And this is the, this very small level is what we like to examine in the lab as well is understanding, kind of every single piece of information. How are you integrating that? Are you integrating it information? How are you doing that? And how are you making the next decision based on what you
1: learned? So, Alexa, would you say that this model that you're talking about is never then fully developed, that it's sort of constantly developing and maybe deteriorating sometimes or just constantly developing through your whole lifespan? I like to think
2: that it's kind of in the slow progression to being perfected, right? As we get older, we're kind of perfecting our model, whatever it be about. However, I think it's more likely that this is kind of experiencing a increase or a perfection as well as a deterioration as we perfect it. Um, So it's hard to say exactly how that happens, but I think it's probably more bi-directional so some improvement some deterioration rather than just this continuous beautiful improvement
0: i feel like our conversation has slightly shifted from models of decision making to just models of the world <laughs> right so I, I just want to make sure that, that we kind of make that distinction that now we're, we're, we're kind of in this slightly more generalized discussion about how we view the world as opposed to models for making decisions. So I'd like to maybe kind of pull us back to the decision-making portion. And I wanna touch on a phenomenon. I believe it's called choice fatigue. I've heard a bit about this in my own readings, but I'd love for you to expound on choice fatigue, uh, what you've learned about it in the literature, Alexa, so far, and maybe how that fits into your research.
2: Yeah, so interestingly enough, it's a little, um, not left field entirely from what I do, but it's a little further than what I'm doing specifically. To my understanding, the idea of choice fatigue is kind of this idea that you would have just too many choices. And this leads to kind of an overwhelming of the decision making system, and leads to a very, um, an increase in difficulty in making a decision. So if you think of, say, going to the grocery store, And there's a lot of people that actually study this aspect of decision-making in fields like marketing, where they'll study how people decide which product to buy in a grocery store or a pharmacy, where it's very common to have not one type of shampoo or three types of brands to choose from, but 20 or 30 types of brands. And then the decision, the idea here is how do people make this decision? And that's when we typically talk about decision fatigue is this idea that it's just overwhelming the um, decision-making system and a decision is really hard to make
0: so what is this decision-making system I like this this sounds very uh, brainy what's going on
2: that's a very good question um, the decision-making system I say it like that because it's still something that's under investigation we're still trying to understand what is contributing to this like I mentioned before we know that memory has a role in decision making so there's definitely a role for all these kind of parts of our brain that are very highly related to decision making. So we can think about the hippocampus, which is like a center, a hub for memory. There's a whole bunch of cool things related to memory and that definitely plays a role. There's also discussion of the involvement of the prefrontal cortex, which essentially the part of the brain kind of right above your eyes under your forehead um, or the orbital frontal cortex. Now we're throwing a whole bunch of fancy words around (laughs) that essentially just mean the front of your head, right? So behind your forehead, that part of the brain. And this role of the orbital frontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex is um, helping us navigate and guide and make decisions in terms of where we want to go in our decision-making process. Or if you're thinking about a map where you want to go in your environment, there's a lot more to it than that, but without going into too many details, those are kind of some of the main elements or parts of our decision-making system.
0: Mm-hmm. okay I just want to make sure that when we use the word system here we are in fact talking about maybe some brain structures that are involved so we do know that there's this kind of interrelatedness between the orbital frontal cortex so that that real really front brain and like you said the hippocampus which is kind of like the center of memory processing deeper inside of our brain so we've got that that connection between those two regions
2: yeah absolutely and there's a lot more to it than just that sure um, but given that's not kind of my My focus right now, I'll leave it to that, and it's definitely true that these areas, these regions are all interconnected, and it's it's this that I'm referring to as a system, is how these different areas communicate to another and kind of work together to help you do different decision-making tasks.
1: So this question is not specifically about the system, but it's more about how When you are you say like you're doing research in a lab and you're with like maybe other people that are researching as well, how are you researching like decision making? Like how are you reading like articles? Are you like specifically asking people like how are you going to decide this or how does that work?
2: Um, My short answer is all of the above. So we do a bunch of different things to get at decision making. Some of it involves what do do you think you're going to do next? Pick between these options. Some of it involves looking at other skills that maybe relate to decision making. So I mentioned how we have previously studied maybe memory and its relationship to decision making. But the bulk of it comes down to essentially kind of programming a video game that's going to force people more or less to make many, many decisions in a very constrained context. So picking between two or maybe four, maybe six options again and again and again And the benefit of that is we can start examining how they change their decision over time based on information they're getting. So things like, well, if they slowly learn over time that the blue button keeps giving them money, do they start preferring the blue button and selecting it more often? And what's the additional benefit of having these many, many decisions that we can look at neural activity So specifically, one of the studies I've recently finished working on had participants fit with an EEG cap, which essentially looks like a bathing cap with little electrodes all over it and measures brain electrical activity. So we can see as they're making these decisions at a very, very kind of highly temporal or very temporally accurate way, what is happening at the brain.
0: When we say temporally accurate, we really just mean that we know precisely when something happens in time.
2: So when they're when they decide to kind of keep choosing this blue button, what is changing in the mind when we make the decision environment? So the map they have to learn to perform well, if we make that really hard, what does the brain do then? If we make it really easy, what does that do? So it's involved. it kind of involves many components here, but the main part is kind of a video game where people have a context of, you know, dealing with space aliens and they have to make these repeated decisions. And we ask them what they're going to do, what they, you know, why they did that. And also looking at what the brain is doing during all of this.
0: It sounds like every decision we make changes our model just a little bit. Like, I really like the example you gave about how every time you press the blue button, it kind of like has the potential to reinforce you pressing the blue button again, depending on what the outcome is at each step of the way. I feel like I'm kind of just forming my own opinion as we discuss this, like, how solid are these models? Are they changing? And of course, like you said, a lot of these questions are still unanswered and under uh, heavy scrutiny in the field, which is great. I I love when things are hyper complex, like I said, and there's just so many different things to analyze. It's a beautiful thing. And I, I love what I'm hearing so far. I do have a couple more questions. And Allegra, please feel free to pop in if you've got any more as well before we wrap up. So I want to quickly touch on this thing that happens to, I think, everybody, which is that when they've had a long day, they just tend to make the deci- either decisions that are irrational or decisions that are easy, right? When there's a choice between two things, we just choose the easier one. I guess we could call it maybe like mental fatigue, but ultimately what's really happening? Like what's the catalyst for... This shift in the way that we make our decisions.
2: Yeah, so I'm starting to feel like a broken record, but this is also something that's still under investigation is understanding what happens there. Why do people kind of get tired and and either make a stupid decision or one they might regret later on or something that seems really simple as opposed to trying to think hard and go for that answer that might be a little hard to get to, but maybe worth it in the end. And there's kind of two ways of viewing this. Um, The first way is kind of seeing that your ability to think hard, if you think of it as like a battery, like you have an indicator on your cell phone, it slowly kind of approaches zero. And at some point with very, very little kind of juice left or battery left, you're either forced to make a decision that's maybe not optimal, given that you have no more ability to engage in that harder decision or to resort to something that's just very simple at that point. It's also very close to the point where people would feel like, okay, I I can't work anymore. I'm depleted or I'm out of kind of this energy or this effort that I used to be able to engage in no problem, maybe an hour or so ago. The other idea is that it may actually kind of be like a this back to this cost benefit analysis idea is that taking a break maybe seemed like. really bad idea before because you have all this work to do but as you keep working on something yes your battery might be slowly depleting but you also may be thinking it's not such a bad idea now to do this other thing I was thinking about given that I did this work and I got to a point where not doing the work would have been dangerous so you're kind of putting yourself in a place where it's not so bad anymore if you stop and do something else and that allows you to kind of a break from all of it and this is something we all experience is kind of this feeling where okay i can't focus anymore i'm just going to do something else i'm going to do something i enjoy doing and then the question is why do we do that is it because kind of our our goals change at that point so it's kind of more worth it to take a break than it was before or is it just that you're kind of out of juice so to speak and you just can't think hard anymore
0: a little bit of full circle here come back to our cost benefit nice beauty Okay, so before I land my last question, Allegra, do you have any final questions or comments before we close things off for the day? Thank you so much, by the way, for joining us, Allegra. This was awesome. Really happy to have you on the show. You asked some amazing questions.
1: Um, I don't have any questions. I was sort of thinking of questions and then you kept answering them as you were going <laughs> along. So it was just, it was great.
0: <laughs> awesome. Perfect. So if anything comes up in the next minute or two, Allegra, just cut me off and then we'll... We'll take that question. So, final question of the day, potentially, is kind of a thought experiment. And that thought experiment involves you imagining yourself at the foot of an auditorium, standing behind the podium, giant room, thousand seat auditorium, packed to the brim, all eyes are on you. What do you tell the audience?
2: I can tell them anything? Anything. Ooh, this is kind of off topic from decision-making, but something I strongly believe in is don't give up. Hard work pays off. And I've rarely seen that not to be true. So regardless of what you're working towards, if it's something you truly believe in, you're motivated to do it well, keep doing it and work hard for it. And something will work out over time. It will kind of pay off for you. yeah, it's kind of a weird take-home message, but I think that's what I would tell tell the audience and probably run away given that I have a little bit of a stage fright, especially if there's you know, that many people staring at me. I would kind of say my message and run away.
0: Okay. Awesome. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Always nice to hear words of encouragement. And, uh, Alexa, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing your research with you today. Really glad that we got to have this kind of uh, three-person discussion. It was really interesting and dynamic for me, being used to mostly just one-on-one interviews. So this was great.
1: Um, yeah, it was really great. It was really interesting. I never really thought about the decision-making behind decision-making before. It never really <sighs> popped into my mind. But now that's getting, like, our talk today has really, it's I don't know. It's grown like an interest in me, and now I'm excited to learn more about it.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Well, we're definitely going to keep in touch with Alexa, and I will be linking to the article that you wrote that inspired some of the questions for today's discussion in the description of the episode, so folks can go and read that when they're done listening to this episode. So thank you again, both of you, for being here. This was so much fun, and I wish you both a great afternoon. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify apple podcasts and pretty much everywhere else you're gonna find podcasts so feel free to check us out around the internet until then take it easy